Today's episode is brought to you by the Consultancy Growth Network. As you'll know, I'm a big believer in learning from people who've achieved the things that you want to. It's why I run this podcast, to share the stories of consulting leaders and how they've got to where they are today. So when I started talking to Mark Janssen and the team at Consultancy Growth Network, it was clear there was an obvious fit between Climate Consulting and their mission and what they are building with their network. But you're probably asking, what is the Consultancy Growth Network? The Consultancy Growth Network is the leading community of booty consulting leaders. It brings together seasoned consulting growth experts who successfully scaled their own boutiques with rapidly growing consulting founders looking to emulate their success. Now, you might be thinking, who are these growth experts? What do they actually know about consulting? And this is one of the most exciting things that personally I find about the network. The team at the Consultancy Growth Network have searched far and wide for some of the best boutique consulting leaders to help their members on their journeys, some of which I have previously interviewed for this podcast, such as Don Morehouse and Augusto Negrillo. But it's not just the insights from these people that you will benefit from. By joining, you get access to their jam-packed calendar of regular in-person and online events, their comprehensive growth hub of resources, and their active Slack community. Through all of these channels, you can learn, solve challenges, and achieve the goals you want for your firm. And now, if that wasn't enough reason to sign up, the Consultancy Growth Network is giving all listeners to this podcast a special sign-up offer. If you join for 12 months, you join for that next year, you will get your 13th month for free, giving you that extra month to continue to build on everything you're learning and continue to benefit from the network. To sign up, just visit consultancygrowthnetwork.com or contact their partnerships director, Luke, at luke at consultancygrowthnetwork.com. And when you're talking about joining, mention Create Engage or Climbing Consulting, and you will get that special sign-up offer. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. Have you ever had one of those sliding door moments, one of those seemingly inconsequential things that happens in your life and ultimately goes on to change your trajectory? I know that I have, and today's guest, Paul Pugh, certainly has. As you'll hear, and I won't spoil too much about the story, it was a chance meeting on a train that, for various reasons, Paul was not meant to be on, that led to a job offer that changed the course of his career, something that you'll hear all about in today's episode. But firstly, who is Paul and a little bit of background. Paul has enjoyed a wide-ranging career that's taken him from the big banks to the big four. And eventually, as you'll hear through that sliding doors moment, a director role in a boutique firm. That boutique firm was Mason Advisory, an award-winning digital and technology consultancy that solves complex business challenges through intelligent use of IT. Paul, with the leadership team, grew the firm and continues to grow the firm successfully. And in 2022, was named CEO, something again we talk about in today's episode. Now, as you've already heard, there's a lot for us to dig into. And we talk about all of that and more, including what it was that actually led Paul to make that jump off the partner track at KPMG and take a leap into the unknown. The importance of staying true to your values and knowing when those are coming into question with the role you're doing. And finally, why Paul believes in giving people the opportunity to flourish and why we tend to learn most during times of crisis. We cover so many different topics in this one, and it's a fascinating story of how that combination of luck and skill can create opportunity. So with the intro done, all that's left to say is please sit back, relax, and enjoy today's conversation with Paul Pugh. 
Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. Well, thank you for welcoming me to your office today. I'm very much looking forward to this. To kick us off, for those who maybe don't know you so well, could you give an overview of your career and how you got to where you are today? Sure, yeah, no problem. I think my career has always been in technology. Uh, having studied at Liverpool in a science and technology degree in those days, it was called computer science. I quickly moved onto a program, a transformation program in 1991 for a company called Gardner Merchants, which is a large catering company, which subsequently have become uh, a Sodexo and large scale catering within hotels and um, motorway services. After that, using those skills, I uh, moved my career into the world of insurance, which is a slightly different career it's change. Quite, quite a shift, yes. But, but um, it was built on SSADM engineer and process modeling and data modeling. Corp Insurance Society at the time was doing a big life systems rewrite. And uh, I started life with Gardner Merchants in the Manchester area. And corporate insurance was, of course, a big part of the Manchester economy. Uh, and still is, and I was fortunate enough to get involved in another large transformation program around pension rewrite, and using the same skills and techniques, got that to the requirement stage. And then from my days, early days of working with the contractors, a colleague of mine who sat next to me on, while well, I was at CIS, took a phone call from a contractor recruitment agency, and they were looking for someone who knew SSA, DM engineer and process modeling and all of the things we've been doing on the program. And that individual didn't want to go contracting, but um, they passed the phone to me and I ended up literally four weeks later jumping on a train up to Edinburgh and doing some work for another financial services organization doing process modeling and requirements gathering and my four-year journey as a independent consultant started then taking me from Bank of Scotland to Barclays where I was involved in the Euro program and from Barclays I then um, was working alongside Anderson Consulting at the time and I quite liked what they were doing and the hard work they were putting in, the results they were getting. So I started to apply for some consulting roles and ended up joining a company called DMR, which is a part of Amdal back in the day. And that's really where I got introduced to ITIL, which is um, a large part of my background in terms of service delivery, service management, and running and delivering large programs and large critical systems. And from a couple of years of working for uh, for DMR, I moved uh, a couple of years working over in Frankfurt on the Euro program at, Handel, at, um, at Commerce Bank in Frankfurt, did various roles as a consultant across the UK when I returned. And then following that, I kind of missed the world of, I guess, client-side relationships. I missed the world of being at home more often because I'd recently been married and we wanted to start a family. And my last client that had worked for DMR was um, the cooperative bank. So almost a full circle on the cooperative group, a slightly different area of the Northwest, moving more close to home in Liverpool and subsequently joined the bank. And I think that's where I kind of really met my I guess, first mentor in my career, a guy called John Bennett. And John was the head of managed service at the Co-op Bank. He'd been in the bank for some time, but he had a real commercial acumen and a real service delivery culture. And John taught me a lot around service management, service delivery, running critical systems, 
learned a lot from John and thank him in my career because that's really where I started to move into my first senior role, having helped the bank implement Smile. John asked me to join the bank permanently. I became head of service delivery. And that was, of course, the Smile Bank was the, the first true internet bank in the early 2000s. And it was the first bank that was offered straight through processing where there was no intervention from start to finish and people could start to do their own banking from home. Fantastic. I mean, quite a journey there, Paul. And obviously, I know because I've prepped for this interview, but for our listeners, that takes us on quite a tour of your kind of, I guess, the roles you've held. There was obviously a jump out to, and we'll come on to it, but KPMG and, and now Mason Advisory. Just in terms of that journey, where do those two fit in? Yeah, so the co-op bank played, and indeed the co-op movement played a, a large part in the shape of my career. Following the successes we had in the bank, and in the bank, they were really, really kind of fond memories in the bank. We had good form, but we worked really hard, and the bank in, was successful in the launching of the first internet bank. Following that, in the mid-20s, the bank insurance company, and of course the insurance company is the company that was the second company in my career, I did a full circle. And as part of the bank and the bank's senior IT management team, we worked with the insurance senior management team and we started to build and forge much closer relationships, looking for synergies across the big contracts, looking for synergies across reciprocal data centers and trying to find ways across the co-op group of how we could be more kind of cost-effective, efficient and in, in, improve the brand of the co-op movement, which, which is a really strong brand based on its ethical stance. And that meant a big deal to me in terms of being working for an organization with, with an ethical stance. And in those days, as I say, when I was there in the, in the mid-20s, it was a great place to work even from a banking point of view, from an insurance point of view. And what was spawned out of that was a company called Cooperative Financial Services, which uh, again, helped move my career forward because I, I took on a, a a bigger role as head of infrastructure and took more responsibility for the data centers, the networks, engines, and services. So all the delivery technology was was my responsibility and the need to start to encourage and manage people's careers and helping them be successful. That became a bigger part of, of my role, less about the technology, to be honest, more about the cost of IT the cost of third parties, the commercial aspects of running a large technology shop. But the most important thing was starting to make sure that the organization had the right capability in place. And that's really where I started to become very interested in behaviors, in giving people the opportunity to step up maybe out of their comfort zones to provide them with opportunity to progress themselves because a bigger organization, more roles, more responsibilities and the opportunity for people to to step up and take more responsibility, more accountability became more apparent and watching people and giving them that opportunity and watching them thrive became something I became really passionate about. And um, therefore, when I was in the bank and we got to a situation where the, the merger between the two had taken place and we've been through quite a lot of transformation, I then became intrigued with the service that our third party system integrators were providing the bank. And I became so intrigued, I ended up leaving the, the, the well, cooperative financial services, it was CFS rather than the bank. Uh, I left CFS and went to join uh, Atos Origin. Career with Atos took a twist almost on week one, day two. I was employed to be a part of the sourcing function 
on day three, I was asked to go up to one of those contracts up in uh, up in Edinburgh. It was the NHS Scotland account. Two years later, I uh, was working quite closely with a gentleman who's sadly no longer with us called Paul Chong. And Paul was well known up in Edinburgh and he was fantastic at working with clients to build relationships and to almost challenge them to operate with the confines of the contract. And together, Paul and I formed this partnership where I was the transformation manager for the retender and Paul was the receiving business as usual manager. And over a period of time, of course, I would hand over to Paul. Paul would take on the, the, the full responsibility and I would then go back to London to to pick up the role that I should have started 18 months, two years ago. And that's what actually happened. But on the way back down to London, and this is where the, I guess, the start of my KPMG journey and where I am today, this is where it really starts. I come across or took a phone call from a, a, a recruitment headhunter and um, come across a company called Xantus, a small organization that was niche around network and data center transformation. And a lot of people in the organization were felt very similar to the skills that I had around service management, around running technology and infrastructure. But in that organization, we have a real fantastic blend of people who had commercial backgrounds, people who had service backgrounds, people who had architectural backgrounds, and people who had large business change transformational background. And with those four areas, the business grew from strength to strength over the period of, I was there from 2007 to 2011 when Xantus got acquired by by KPMG and off we all we all went to Canary Wharf. My five years at KPMG were very, very fondly remembered. Lots of great clients, lots of great complex transformation. That's where I first came into touch with the service now relationship and multiple accounts, multiple engagements, fantastic five year experience and probably would have still been there today had I not bumped into Steve Watmore on the train one day and a sliding doors moment. Tell me about that, because I think that was, to your point, um, these sliding doors moments always fascinate me, kind of, yeah, how did that opportunity come about and why might you have been at KPMG had it not been for that train? So after joining KPMG, for various reasons, we'd all found our own position in KPMG in our own way around KPMG. And for me, that I think really is one of the strongest things that as kind of a leader within our business today, that managing risk and the risk posture and the risk exposure of the business, I learned a lot from KPMG and a lot of that risk approach, that governance approach was key. And within our business today, we do operate, I would say, a, a process light version of that. But back to your question around the, the, the sliding doors moments. And so Steve had moved on. There's kind of a longer winded way of where Steve had ended how and why Steve had ended up in Mason Advisory, but he had carved out a group of talented people from a company called Analysis Mason and, and started Mason Advisory. He had been 18 months into the journey and I was literally still in KPMG, heading off up to Edinburgh to meet a client. So I stepped onto the first carriage, got my laptop out, started work and it was um, February, March, so the weather wasn't very warm. And the announcement come on to say carriage B or C or D, whichever was in, heating's off. If you'd like to move carriages, it's now a undesignated train, i.e. going to sit anywhere. So um picked my bag up, 
course headed for first class. <laughs> As you do. Yeah, scouser and scouser on the train go and get an upgrade free. Is now undesignated. Heads up to first class. Door opens and there's Steve sat there. Steve is obviously heading up to Edinburgh himself, and Steve won't mind me saying this. We've talked about it many times. So put my bag to one side, sat beside Steve, and obviously we talked about the Xantis days. We talked about the KPMG days. He was very interested to see how KPMG was treating me. And of course, it was all favorable. He was delighted to hear that. Uh, then we got on to a bit about what he was doing. And again, he was equally as excited to tell me that he'd gone into startup mode, carving out a group of specialists in the radio comms and network arena. Uh, and we were chewing the fat quite a bit around how I developed this service now proposition, uh, the IT service management proposition within KPMG. We got off at Waverley. We uh, shook hands, wished each other the best of luck, promised we'd keep in touch. And then he went left, I went right and thought no more of it. And then for some reason, and again, I can't recall quite how, we bumped into each other quite quickly following that session. And it was one of those moments where Steve said, look, I kind of been thinking about this, not for me to have asked you if you were happy at KPMG, because it obviously clearly came across that you are very happy, but I didn't want you to think that also in asking for all that help, I wouldn't consider you to come and help me. And if ever were the day when you thought of a career move, please do pick up the phone because I think you'd be a big help to me in the business. So, of course, flattery gets you nowhere. Again, we, we kind of got on with what we were planning to get on with that day because, as I say, we hadn't prearranged a meeting. In the coming months, my kind of career at KPMG was at a pivotal point in terms of will I make partner, won't I make partner, and having just bumped into Steve, it got me thinking about is this the crossroads of my career in terms of stay on the KPMG bus and try even harder to make partner and pick up the phone and say to Steve, well, can we talk? And after um, a lot of conversation with, I guess, my wife and Joanne, and we actually together decided that probably a change is as good as a rest. And we, but we both strongly agreed that if I carried on the KPMG route and did make partner, then actually that would have been hopefully my career track set the next period or three. So I took the, at the time, felt like a very risky I'm gonna, decision. And I'm going to jump in for, so just because to you, you mentioned there about you and Joanne sort of discussing this. Obviously it's worked out for you and, you know, we're here talking with you, CEO. It was the right decision. I imagine at the time it felt much harder and I'd love to understand some of those thought process, some of those conversations. You know, what, do you remember any of the ones that really had a kind of a particular impact on that decision? Because hearing it here, some will think it's an obvious decision, but I imagine at the time, you know, that partner carrot, if you like, is so close. I know many people who don't make that jump. So yeah, ha I'd love to know the questions you asked or the things that really made you decide, yeah, it is time to, like you say, have a change, which is as good as a rest. Yeah, there was many questions you can imagine financial, you can imagine travel, you can imagine well-being. Of course, this is very hard to describe to your wife or your partner where you go off to work on a Monday and this probably in what we do, there's still, my wife's a building surveyor, so the world of technology is quite alien really, and as is the world of building to me. And we talked about a lot of things, but the thing that 
most sprung to mind for me, and this may well be a bit controversial, but it's the thing that I remember most vividly is that from a, I would say, a humble background, the world of KPMG was something that I'd never, ever dreamt of being involved in. As I say, I had five fantastic years. But one of the things that Joanne said to me that kind of really resonates, and I think this was the tipping point, were she clearly recognized that the world I was working in, you spend quite a lot of time thinking about what people expect you to say and how they expect you to behave rather than operating true to your values, true to your models. And and the, the closer I got to potentially becoming a partner in KPMG, the more I started worrying about what people thought about me, the more I tried to preempt what they wanted me to say rather than what I wanted to say and how I wanted to behave. And it was that particular conversation where I thought, hold on a minute, this is like, I'm, I'm moving away from my morals. I'm moving away from my own kind of humble upbringing and my parents obviously encouraging me to, to be ambitious, but actually my parents encouraged me to be an individual with treating people fairly, treating people honestly, but most of all, as well as respecting others, but respect yourself. And I won't say what my dad used to say, but basically it was in the essence of everyone's the same. They come into the world with the same, they leave the world with the same. Not quite that expression they used to use, but uh, it was on those lines. And I sat there and I thought, right, okay, this is really interesting. I have turned into something that I thought I needed to be rather than someone I was. And it was that moment in time where I thought, actually, I could get involved in something that's equally as exciting. It might not work. And I was at least had the enough confidence to know that I could go and find myself another job, another career, another track to, um, to pay the bills and look after the family. But most importantly for me, it allowed me to become myself again for seven years next month. I have to say, for that very reason, I think that's that's absolutely crystallised into something that I feel really comfortable sat here now about being myself and not trying to think about what people expect me to say or expect me to do. I can actually, of course, back to the, the mantra of being fair and being honest and treating people kind with respect. I think, for me, that was the, the, the best and the biggest decision in that decision to uh, to move on from KPMG. I think that's really powerful, Paul, and I love, to your point, taking that kind of moment and, you know, through that conversation with Joanne, is this really me as a person? And also, what is this organization doing is maybe the wrong word, but what impact is this organization having on me? Because I think, to your point, it can be easy to get swept up in a larger organization and mold to the the culture or what you see of others. And I've never worked in a big organization. The biggest I got was 3,000 people and I left after a couple of years. So it probably tells you I'm, I'm more like you than anything else. But I I do think there's probably a lot of people where, like you say, that all of the other things you can think about, but actually fundamentally, is this right for you? Is it when you look in the mirror, are you happy with who you are because of this? That's a really powerful point. I'm going to ask this just in case there's anything else for others to think about, because I suspect since you've done it, you've had people who have picked up the phone and gone, Paul, I'm thinking of moving or I've got this opportunity. Is that the advice you give to others? Or is there anything else that you kind of, you encourage people to think about when you may have spoken to them or had some of these conversations over a beer somewhere? I think just going back to KPMG was a, an amazing time in my career. I had worked for large organizations. Atos were a 30,000 people organization. In my early career, I thought the bank was a big corporate organization. It was 
it was big enough. CFS was twice as big and that was certainly big enough. The international presence of KPMG was really good to me because I was able to build relationships because of my involvement in service now. I was able to build relationships because of our international work that we did over in Switzerland, especially. So the international opportunity, the opportunity within KPMG that there is no door that isn't accessible. And the advice, I guess, people have to work that out for themselves in terms of whether or not they want to adapt or adopt learnt behaviours. Because some people, again, a lot of people do that very successfully, but they have a better ability than I had around flip-flopping between learnt behaviours and natural behaviours. So I think those that can control the learnt behaviours obviously don't need to worry about those things. I clearly started to have a bit of a problem around learnt behaviours and natural behaviours, and I did something about it. And I think that's the only advice I would give to people is in terms of whether it's that scenario or any other scenario. If ever you think you're going down a route where you don't feel comfortable or whatever you're going down a route where actually you're losing connection with friends, family, values, personal well-being, that's the point where just pause, reflect, take advice from the people closest to you that will give you a real honest answer. And if the answer is, no, everything's fine, carry on. If the answer is, and even if there's a hesitancy in that person's voice, I would, again, just pause a bit longer just to explore, is this the right thing to do? Because at the time, I thought it was a big gamble on reflection now. As I say, I wouldn't have changed for the world. The people I work with now and the relationships we have and the business we have has been, again, probably the most fulfilling part of my career since the days when I graduated. Amazing. And I think some great advice, Paul, and to your point that, almost taking a pause at whatever point that is and whether it's about making partner whether it's you're you know you're not at that stage but it's about moving firm or you know I've I've had guests on this show where they have been a partner and that point has come as well I I really like what you said as as well around because partner can be such a goal often people can be blinded by it and you know as you highlighted just taking stock of that. Yes, it's a good goal, but you know, I've had a guest on here who likens being a partner to winning a burger eating competition where the prize is more burgers. Like you're, it's the same, same. It's not that different. And actually thinking about that for yourself, I think some great advice. And I realized I, I cut in and I'm very pleased I did because I think that's a fantastic uh, guide for anyone listening. Bringing us back then, you were about to talk about actually joining Mason Advisory. And maybe for me to tear up and you can tell me how right or wrong this is. Obviously, you are now CEO. My understanding is that that wasn't the conversation originally. You came in to be part of the management team. So I kind of maybe let you pick up there. Like, what was the opportunity Steve presented and what was the opportunity you you know, you know jumped on to, to join the team? Yeah, I think the opportunity Steve presented was a bit vague. It was, uh, we're just kind of, we just need to get some stuff done. We need to put a bit more governance we need to create a lot more confidence of people in the business in our ability to be able to operate in different markets and not just public safety, not just public sector. But we can win business within financial services. We can do different types of work. We can sell business of teams of five, six, seven, and eight. And a lot of people still exist in our business who are really, really talented, uh, who are will have done absolutely brilliantly had I not joined the business. And the thing in our businesses that's most important is 
that everyone continues to work together. Everyone continues to look out for each other. Everyone continues to make sure that if anyone is in a period of need and a particular period of high pressure and a particular client, we all pitch in. We all make sure that that individual, A, realize that there's people around them and B, make sure that from time to time, we all put our around around that people, that person, and make sure that uh, they know that they're a part of a team rather than an individual doing a very high-pressure job. And as I say, the, 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 the journey of, of Mason Advisory is kind of built on cultures and, and, and values not dissimilar to Xantus, as you'd imagine. Steve was the CEO of Xantus, and of course, he brought a lot of the, the great things from Xantus and those that we're already in the business, Mason Advisory business. Of course, they're fed up with Steve and I talking about Santos and because this is just a, a business that they hear about and they talk about, we talk about strong cultures. Of course, they're just trying to understand the similarities between the two not being involved in, 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 in Zantus. So I think from our perspective, we've tried to not re- keep referring back to those days. We've tried to pull out the bits that were, I guess, the most important bits of that evolution and embed them in our business. But the most important thing is we've not then just said they're there to stay. We've started to evolve it. And I think I can quite safely say now that we have our own DNA and we've built that DNA by, again, the key to all of this is just hiring and attracting and retaining very, very talented people. And as a business, you, you, you create a brand that is famous for something. And I think our brand is built on people who are honest, who are trusted, uh, and who will walk through walls for our clients. Um, they don't necessarily want to be seen as a, by our clients with high adulation. They're happy to be in the background and seeing other people benefit from their hard work. And again, that's a strong DNA on our business in terms of people who uh, put a good shift in, are specialists and experts in their field, are very prepared to share their knowledge, and but are most interested in seeing other people succeed from their endeavours. And we still continue to be the, the best-kept secret in the industry, but those that do know us, and we, we do regularly ask for feedback on this basis. Those that do know us talk about us of having no jargon, straight talking, experienced people who will roll the sleeves up and get stuff done. We, of course, we provide strategy, we provide advice, but most importantly, we can turn advice into execution and outcomes. And I think that's what we're most famous for. And uh, the people in our business are from a, by design from a mixture of backgrounds. So we've got by equal proportions now people who are have a long career in consulting. We've got people who are coming from client side senior roles. We've got people who come from the SIs organizations like I was in around Atos and DXC and CSC. And that triangulation of skills around we, we know how to advise, we know how to consult, we know how to present a complex challenge and play it back to a client in a way that they can understand in simple terms as well as bringing in the client side view of without being too much in your face around, I've been in your chair, I know how it feels. And then the third bit of that is 
We've also got some people who come from the system integrator world around, I know how to motivate your suppliers because I was once a supplier. So thinking of those three pillars again in terms of, I know how to motivate suppliers. I know what it feels like to be in the client chair, having to get some complex done things done quite quickly, but also being able to turn that into good, solid, trusted advice. I think that's the corner, the three cornerstones of how we built our business and built the talent into markets based on those capabilities. Fantastic. And you you touched on something I was keen to pick up with you, Paul, which is that cultural side. And I know we've sort of, we've delved into it along the journey, just because it'll help my listeners in terms of just pure headcount. Where were you when you started? And where are you now? And then I can sort of, it'll help with my question. Oh, estimates. Are- es- estimates, I would say in 2016, when I joined um, Mason Advisory, we were between 20 and 30. And today we sit between 105 and 120. Wow. So that, and I, and I say that because we've got people joining every week and we've got, we had two this week, we've got two next week. And I would say it's probably about 110 as we stand today. That is quite a growth journey. And that goes on to my next question. So you mentioned around, you know, ultimately it is as simple as hiring and retaining great people as with most of these things at that level, it's simple when you're then managing that culture and and building somewhere that people want to join and then want to stay. That I imagine changes considerably as you go from, you know, 30 is basically a a classroom of of friends where you all know each other. 120 is a kind of, you may know everyone, but you may not see everyone every week or every month. Actually, how have you, Steve and the leadership team, how did you evolve that culture over time? And, and you know, how have you been able to keep some of those core elements, you know, that honesty, some of those other bits you mentioned, while adapting it to the different scales? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. On one that I'll be honest with you, some of the things you do, you'll never quite know what the main ingredient to how it's turned out. You know what the ingredients are, but you don't quite know what the main ingredient was. In our business, the thing that sticks out to me is is all about the talent and getting the right team together and attracting people to the business that have a very, very similar perception of, of, of values and culture and not to create a, a clone or cookie-cut approach. It's about bringing people in with almost different backgrounds but actually, and actually different ways of applying the same thing. But it's hard to explain, really. It's a the secret sauce, the secret ingredients is bringing diverse opinion and talent in, but somehow getting them all pulling in the same direction. And uh, I've got to say, I'm probably not the best person to articulate how we've done it. But one of the things we have done, and one of the things we've done as a business rather than me or the management team, this is what we've done as a business. We've always pulled in the same direction. We've made some mistakes along the way. We've had some ups and we've had some downs, more ups and downs. But the thing we've always done is reflected and pulled in the same direction. And as I say, the it's hard to pinpoint the absolutely the most important ingredients. But for me, the if there were one, it's about talent and people and how you give people the opportunities to flourish and then just let them spread the wings, let them learn sometimes the hard way and I'm a big believer in you learn the most, as I said a bit earlier in terms of my, my banking days, you learn the most in times of crisis. And in times of crisis, the most important thing to do is to be supportive 
is to allow people the time to reflect and give people the opportunity to fix things for themselves rather than tell them where they went wrong. Basically, it's back to the, I guess, doing a consulting job internally. Ask them open questions. Ask them what they would have done differently. Ask them how they feel. Ask them if they had the situation again, how would they react if indeed it were going to be differently? And then almost letting them come up with their own conclusions rather than writing it down in, let us say, a, a performance review. This is about being supportive. This is about people giving people the best working environment to, to be the best they can. One where you, you, you celebrate the good things and you also learn and take positive attitude to the things that I guess haven't been or haven't gone as well as, as you wanted in the first place. I don't think it's easy for me to say, but we don't operate, so we try not to operate a blame culture. We allow people to seek forgiveness. I know these are all cliches, but these are just simple techniques where you treat people as individuals. You allow people to grow and flourish at their own rate. No, I think, you know, to your point, that pulling in the same direction, I mean, that is at its core, isn't it? And I, it was something that interested me in, in your journey and just to what you said there around actually you bring people in from consulting, from industry, from the big SIs. At a very high level, those can be quite different people with different skill sets. And I'm interested, how do you get them or are there any things that help to get them pulling in the same direction? Is it you make sure they're the right type of person coming in the door? Is there sort of certain skills that consultants need to learn that people from industry don't and vice versa? Just because those can be quite different groups sometimes. I, I'm, I'm interested here yeah, how, how you've helped to sort of get them going in the same direction. Well, I think on paper, they look like different groups. I think in reality, they're the same group. I think people in consulting think like this is something that you are taught around consulting. I think the almost the, the T model, as we refer to in terms of in your early career, you're at the top of the T and you're a sponge and you're taking as much information as you can. You're curious, you're passionate, and you'll go and seek everyone's opinion and you'll absorb that to, to, to shape your own career as I did back into the days of God, the merchants and CIS. And then when you become famous for something, you go down the leg of the T and you become a specialist in an area. And then when you hit the bottom of the T, you either carry on and you become a an uber specialist in a particular area or you hit the bottom and you start to float to the top again where you become almost a more generalist where you, you, you're you managing people, you're leading people, but you've still got that area of specialism. I think there's many, many areas of specialisms. You can be a, an architect, you can be a service architect, you can be a cybersecurity specialist, you can be a large change delivery transformation a professional. But ultimately, I'd don't think it matters. No, it definitely doesn't matter whether you come from a consulting background, a supplier background, or a client background. The abilities and, and people's experience is something that is back to that pulling in the same direction. Within our business, we've, we've got people from who've been in the business for what is now approaching 27 years because they were part of the original Analysis Mason. You've got people in our business who've been with us for, well, literally days, but let's say single years. And you've got people come from all types of background, but it's, it's, it's intriguing just how quickly everyone very quickly understands actually the world of consulting is no different from always being a consultant or coming from client side or coming from supply side. It's all about building relationships. It's all about sharing knowledge. It's all about being the best you can on a particular 
engagement and the best you can on a particular engagement is about supporting us, it's about supporting the clients, it's about sharing your knowledge. In our business, there's now a hundred people and you would not know if I lined up a handful or a sample of 50 people, you, you'd have no idea which ones come from a consulting, purest consulting background, which ones come from a supplier background, which one comes from a client background. You, and even people that have just been from client side, I would say in the last 12, 18 months, you would have no idea which backgrounds they come from. And that's the bit about pulling in the, in the, in the right direction. That's a bit about not understanding what the, the secret, the absolutely main ingredients around secret sources. But, but somehow we put a group of talented people together. We put them in front of a client that has a real complex need and we're able to make that, that client successful. And we're able to somehow spread the knowledge of the team in a way that the next version of that team to the next client just becomes a stronger version of Mason Advisory. And that's how we built, that's how we built our business. That's how we managed to scale. Fantastic. Well, and I think Paul, very fair point. You know, when actually there's often more similarities than differences as much as sometimes people like me like to focus on the differences for their questions. So now I think a really great point. I want to turn to and back to your journey, just because again, it's, it's an interesting step and something I always like to find out on this show things that are slightly different from others. So, you know, to your point, there's lots of people who make partner at KPMG. There aren't that many people who take over as CEO from the the founding CEO, as it were. And I'd love to understand when that journey started. And, and maybe I'll ask this and you can tell me the place it came. If you weren't expecting to become CEO, what was that conversation you and Joanne had when Steve approached you, assuming he did approach you? So maybe you can tell me the, the story of how that came to being. I was hoping you'd forgot that question around CEO. <laughs> I think, I think from my perspective, I just, again, rightly or wrongly, I just see myself as a, having a role in the business that is performing a set of activities that just happen to be called given a title no more important no less important than anyone in our business it was most definitely a, a role that I guess I'm not sure I, I never thought I'd make but it wasn't a role that I was super keen to take on Steve is still a, a big part of our business he's definitely the statesman figure statesperson figure in our business and everyone loves him still being around and still see to still go to him for advice and we especially still go to him to to try and help us with gain access to clients and his infamous black book so it wasn't something that i was naturally on a on a progression path to clearly every organization needs a succession plan and i'm trying to think back i think as a business or certainly the business i've been involved in for the last seven years we've I think we operate with a level of maturity slightly, always operate with a level of maturity slightly more than you'd expect of a business of our size. So I guess the the early stages of, of my time with Mason Advisors, it was just all about getting, just getting stuff done. It was an opportunity would come in and we'd all get really excited and we'd put our best bid together and we'd go and speak to some clients and we were more obviously successful than not because we would just become more particular about what we bid for because 
we were only a small organization and we were doing quite well. So our, we were running hot on resources. So as the new bids come in, we were having to qualify quite hard to make sure we didn't spread ourselves too, too thinly. One of the things that we, we continue with our principles today is we, we never ever say you can have this team and then substitute them out for a, a different team. We never oversell. We always try to over deliver, even to the extent of some hard decisions around turning opportunities away. Uh, our most important client is the current clients we're delivering to. Our most important people are the people in our business and making sure that we set them up for success. So they're all some of the key things of our business in terms of just being true to ourselves and true to our clients and making sure that, as I say, we don't offer one thing and then deliver something completely different. In the early days, we, we just got some stuff done. We had some early wins in the world of financial services. And from that, of course, we use that as a platform. There's nothing better than having a real complex program under your belt and then being able to talk about it. That's what our clients are most interested in. They're not interested in being sold to. They're interested in being party to information where you've helped other organizations who have similar challenges and how you've overcome them. And then throughout that journey, we went from just getting stuff done to restructuring around a real focus on public sector and private sector. That first iteration since I joined was back in, I joined in 2015, so probably would have been about 2017, where we split the business into two. I took on the private sector business and a colleague, Duncan Swan, who's since retired, took on the public sector part. And that gave us the real focus to be able to almost build capability that we could both share but have laser focus on the needs of our clients and making sure that we were relevant to that particular market. I think the relevance to public sector and private sector clients is the two are very close to, the two are not dissimilar. People must think that the similarities of public sector and private sector clients are quite different. They're not exactly the same as CIO and public sector, CIO and private sector have the same challenges to some degree. Public sector challenges are larger in scale, are with the existence of frameworks, the procurement takes a little bit longer. But ultimately, the clients, the customer, the CIO has the same challenges. And we've all seen over the last five years that I think there's, there's lots more movements of CIOs across public and private sector than there was maybe 10 years ago. And both sectors are benefiting from that because there's good crossover and there's good disciplines that can be taken from one to the other. So in those days, we, we, we decided to split up private and public sector and we set ourselves targets to get to X revenue on both sides. So we would have an equal balanced business. And that wasn't for, I guess, for vanity. That was more back in 2008 when um, those that had a large financial services sector, when the financial services market took a, a downward turn, then those without a balanced portfolio obviously found it more difficult to keep up, to keep their people busy. So we were, we were really interested in building a balanced organization, balanced client, and bringing in talent that could actually operate across the two, but talent that were, was actually fitted in our five key service areas. Then when we got to that stage and we successfully got to our targets, that's when we also then decided to think about how do we then scale the business because Duncan and I were 
becoming key person dependencies. And there were lots of talented people in the business that we wanted to give opportunities to grow their roles in the business. Of course, <laughs> we, we run the risk of where there's a glass ceiling occupied by Duncan and I, those that wanted to have a big career and were more ambitious. We didn't want them to feel as if they had to leave the organization to, to achieve what they want to achieve. So we opened up both of our, what we refer to as, as sectors, we opened them up and we, we promoted a couple of people into associate directors and directors in our private sector and a couple of people in public sector. And we then give them their teams to flourish. You give them their revenue targets to go and hit. And, and again, we scale the business that way by just identifying people in the business that wanted to step up and were best place to help other people and nurture them in the business to help them step up in their particular roles. And almost every year, every other year, we, we, we all shuffle up a level. And of course, one of the most recent shuffles was that uh, Steve decided that he wanted to step aside from running the day-to-day business, as I call it, rather than be known as a CEO. I think I'd sooner be known as the person that is responsible for the running of the day-to-day business, the person that's responsible for creating an environment where people can flourish and provide a nurturing environment where people can learn and, and pass on knowledge. So it's a title. I'd sooner focus on the role. And the role is to make sure that as an organization, that we uh, were a solid organization that's come through the period of COVID. And we've done that through keeping honest to our clients during COVID. We were fortunate enough to have some real strong strategic relationships and our clients stuck with us during that period. Uh, And in return, we made sure that we focused on their needs at that particular time. We're we're really quite proud to say we didn't furlough anyone during that period. And on the 23rd of March, I think it was in 2020, Steve Duncan and I sat there and we thought, what do we need to do to make sure this business survives? What could be uh, a week, a month? a year and we just didn't know what was going to happen our clients would ring up and say this project's being cancelled this engagement's being cancelled the transformation budget's being taken from one area to another but luckily as i say well luckily we had a an established business luckily we had talented people that were experienced enough to be able to work from home that had built strong relationships that were able to continue those relationships over teams without seeing the clients or the professional friends for a period well over 12 months as you well know and that was all based on the early part of the creation of Mason Advisory to make sure that we've got that collaborative environment in place that when we then had to work from home in remote circumstances we all trusted and knew each other well enough and our clients trusted us well enough to know that we would get on and help them get through some of their challenges that they faced through COVID and the need to mobilize technology pretty quick. Now, I, I really like the point as well, Paul, around the, it's not so much the title, it's the role. And that actually, it's, it's yet another role that needs to be done in the firm for the firm to be successful. And I think that balance across everyone's role is just as important. So I think a really nice point. In that way, because you described how you, you've grown the business, you've put those different layers in. In that step up over the last sort of six, 12 months, has it just felt like that natural evolution, you know, to going from running a practice to run, you know, to, to running the, the day-to-day of the firm? Or have there been any areas where actually that has necessitated for you quite a, a shift in approach or, or style? Yeah, I just, I'm interested for anyone who might be going on a similar journey. I think that my reflection on that question, I was fortunate enough where 
as a business, we, we all shared quite a lot of the responsibilities. There was never, that's my role, that's your role, you don't need to get involved. So between Duncan, Steve and I, we looked at the finances together, we looked at the recruitment process together, we looked at our evolution of service groups together, and we had a consistent view of the type of person we wanted in our business. And so I think the progression into my current role wasn't as daunting as as it could have been because it it, it just became a proportional increase in activities rather than a complete shift of being involved in new activities. I think the, the thing that helped me most of all, and I, I keep saying this, is is the people in the business, they are so supportive that you're not seen as the CEO. You're not seen as anyone different. You're, you're just another member of the team. And, and with that comes the full support, the full commitment of everyone to make each other successful. So the support I've had from everyone in the business, the support I've had from Steve, the support I've had from the board in stepping up really has made it feel so natural that, as I said before, this is just another role in a business that's grown quite quickly. We share a lot of responsibilities. We share a lot of anxiety. We share a lot of successes. And I imagine, although I don't feel it, the world of being a CEO could be quite a lonely one. I don't feel that in our business. I feel like I've got a lot of people around me who are there with the interest of the business at the right at the core of what they think. It's not about me. It's not about them. All the people talk about in our businesses is our business doing the best it can. So for me, the thing I worried about most of all, even though I'd been in the business for what approaching six years at the time was how would people act differently for me? And guess what? I guess people have acted differently. To some degree, they've become much more supportive and they've become much more open with me. And I don't believe anyone has ever thought, I can't share this with Paul because either A, he's not interested or B, it's just not the right detail for him. I think it really has evolved over seven years, not just the 12 months I've been in the role. It really has evolved over the seven years. And, um, I say it's a, it's, it, it really is a privilege to be a part of the Mason advisory team and start to think about more strategic activities we can get involved in because the, the, the health of the business, the size of the business, the scale of the business is allowing us now to look forward with a lot of confidence that we are on the right track. We have got the people and the, the, the skills in the right places. And we are, I would say, structured for our next level of scalability and onwards and upwards. Fantastic, Paul. Well, I think quite a nice place to draw us to towards the end of our interview. And with that, there are two questions that I ask all of my guests. So are we very interested to get your answers as well? The first one is about books. And I, before going on, I know not everyone is a reader. I've had a number of guests tell me, actually, I don't read books. I listen to podcasts or I read magazines or whatever it is. But I, I'll ask it as books and you can take it where you want. And that, and that is, what is the book or or books that Either you found yourself giving to others or, or you keep referring back to, you know, what is it that's had the most impact on you? I would imagine this is probably, I'm guessing now, that something that a lot of people are referred to. And I'm not a big reader. I'm not a big TV watcher. Interestingly, I'm not a big podcast listener. Until now, Paul. Until, until now, now, of course. What I do enjoy doing and I spend most of my time doing is, is talking to people. 
and understanding how they feel and learning from them. That's an aside. But I think the book that I always refer to is, and there's loads in this kind of type of book, isn't the book that like good to great is, is, is probably a, a famous one. And I think the, the good to great mantra is, is, is key. And it's one that I would say we as a business strive to be great at what we do, not necessarily run the risk of saying that we, we want to be the best at everything, but we want our clients to think that we are great at what we do. And but once you hit greatness, then of course, it's hard to maintain that standard. And I think the simple answer to the question is that in some areas we couldn't want to be great and in areas where we're great in the eyes of our clients, we want to maintain that status. And it's hard maintaining that status, but that's the thing where we put all of our all of our effort really. Fantastic, and a very good book recommendation. It's uh, it is one that comes up quite frequently, and having read it, rightly so, I think you know that there are very few books that business books that are based on academics, and very few academic books that make it across. But it's one of the best at the intersection. I think some fantastic lessons for anyone running a consultancy in there. And then the very last one, and this might be a recap of some of the points that you've you've made throughout. It might be some new pieces, but you have three people in front of you, and, and using the the kind of KPMG parlance because it, it'll be the one that's easiest for all listeners is one of those people in front of you is an analyst, you know, that graduate. One of them is that manager level, sort of in the middle of the grades. And, and the third, I guess, Paul, is where you were. And you've, you may have already given the advice for this person, but I'll ask it anyway, that person approaching partner. And the question is, is what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? I think I've already answered the question around the, the person approaching partner in terms of at that stage of your career, you've probably shaped your your natural behaviours and you've, you have you're quite comfortable with your learnt behaviours too. So my advice, and people at that level don't need my advice, of course, but talking about myself personally, I'd reflect on in that situation, just be true to yourself and don't try and second guess what people want you to say. Just be confident enough to say what you think is the right thing to say. So the analyst one was, I would say, try not to develop sharp elbows to well, at all in your career but if you're in an environment where you feel like you need to develop sharp elbows to get on then I would say you don't need to do that to be successful I think being collaborative being collegiate being kind to others and kind doesn't mean being soft it kind means being honest to others I think early on in your career when you've got a large proportion of your career still ahead and therefore don't be too impatient. I think being honest, kind and trying not to develop sharp elbows is, is I think will put people in, in good stead moving forward. The middle one is probably the hardest one really because that's obviously the intersect between that I guess that was the management the manager level so kind of I probably do people a disservice here. I four, five, six, seven years in, you know, it's someone who to your point around your T example, they, they've probably done the top of the T and they might be going down a T, but they aren't at the decision point, you know, where you are. They aren't at that senior level yet looking at partner and those sort of things. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Again, controversial four, five, six, seven years. That's back in my twenties. I would have thought four, five, six, seven years. I know nothing. <laughs> and I would have just been trying to learn as much as I can. And I guess at the manager level, I would probably on reflection. It's probably back to titles. Don't worry too much about the manager title. You could be a manager of process. You could be a manager of people. You could be manager of lots of things. 
And I think if one day you're a key team player and the next day you're a manager, my advice would be don't change overnight. I think it's make sure that you work harder at being a team player and think less about becoming a manager. I think, Paul, some great advice to end us on. So thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think we've we have covered a lot of ground in quite a short space of time and some fantastic stories as well. The sliding door moment, I absolutely loved. But the last thing to ask is if anyone wants to find out more about yourself, they want to find out more about Mason Advisory, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Well, of course, they can connect to me on LinkedIn, Paul Pugh. Not many Paul Pews around. They can visit our website, masonadvisory.com. And either of those two routes, as well as following us on LinkedIn as a company, as well as me personally, or on Twitter, all of the normal social media routes. If you give us a nudge on any of them, we will certainly reply. Fantastic. Well, we will put links to all of those in the show notes, Paul. So anyone listening, if you want to go and find Paul and Mason Advisory, they are at the bottom of the show notes. But Paul, this has been great. So thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you, Nick. Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing and they wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you you can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch 
to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.